Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 234, A Masterpiece of Villainy. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a astrologer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the Baker Street Irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! And welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, you look a little villainous this morning as you as you twirl your mustache at me. Yes, yes, it's true. Well, it's part of my overall transformation. I've decided that I've spent far too many years as Bert Wolder amiable Sherlockian, and now it's time for me to evolve and transform into Burt Wolder, Artist Collective. <laughs> and then I can sell an NFT. There you go. NFT. And I want to be part of what's going on. I mean, look, earlier this morning, I took a coin and I took tried to take a bite out of it because I've read about this Bitcoin thing. And I think people who do that billions of times deserve all the profit. It's really hard. Bitcoin. I see yeah. what you did there. Well, mm. that's a minor undertaking, yeah. <laughs> as they say. Well, uh, we are not here to talk about crypto. We are here to talk about, well, not even things cryptic. We are here to talk with Ross Davies and Ira Matetsky about the latest BSI Press manuscript book, A Masterpiece of Villainy, which is the manuscript of the Norwood Builder. It's a fascinating conversation that we're in for, and we hope you will stay tuned for it. First, we need to remind you that the show notes for this episode can be found at ihose.co slash ihose234. Wow, it's wonderful how the, those numbers just roll off the tongue. That's all lowercase, ihose.co slash ihose234. That'll take you to the ihearofsherlock.com website where you can find all kinds of things in addition to the show notes here. We'll have links to the green bag and to uh, the BSI press and anything else you need to know, including episodes that we will mention in the show because of course both of our guests have appeared previously on i hear of sherlock everywhere and their conversations are wonderful to go back and mine we should also remind you that if you would like to support the show we would certainly welcome that you can go to patreon.com slash i hear of sherlock or just hit that orange button in our show notes that will allow you to support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Every contribution helps. It contributes to how we pay for the hosting costs, for the email, for the editing, planning, prize purchasing, everything. Oh, and pri speaking of prize purchasing, we do have another wonderful prize available for people later in the show, which is... Well, you'll have to stay tuned for exactly what that prize is right after the interview. So let's get to it, shall we? Well, we are pleased to welcome back both Ross Davies and Ira Matetsky to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Ross, of course, is a, um, a professor. He teaches law at George Mason University. 
and he edits the Green Bag and its satellites at greenbag.org, including the Baker Street Almanac. And he operates a website featuring Sherlockian maps and toasts at rossdavies.org. He is the head mastiff of the Sons of the Copper Beaches, and he has some sort of role in the ACD Society. Ira Brad Matesky is a New York City Sherlockian whose interests include the publication and bibliographical history of the canon, law and the canon, Sherlockian society history and traditions, and Doylean and Sherlockian poetry. He's had articles in the BSJ, the Serpentine Muse, the Watsonian, and several Scion publications, and, of course, the BSI press book, Canon Law. He he co-edited Upon the Turf, which was published by the BSI Press in 2020 with Candy Lewis. And he's a member of the Adventresses of Sherlock Holmes and the Sons of the Copper Beaches. He co-edited and contributed to the Sherlock Holmes-themed editions of the Green Bag Almanac and Reader in 2015 and 2016, and is the canonical annotations editor of the Baker Street Almanac. His other detective fiction activities include serving since 2007 as the Werowance, or president of the Wolf Pack, the Literary Society for the Nero Wolf Novels by Rex Stout. He's a litigation partner at Ganfershore Leeds and Zouderer in Manhattan. Gentlemen, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Very well, so. we are here once again. It is, Jan- well, not January. My gosh, it's February already. Uh, <laughs> but coming out of every January, as it has become a tradition at the BSI Weekend and here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, we have new books from the BSI Press. And in this case, the wonderful manuscript series continues with the manuscript for the Norwood Builder. Ross, you served as editor for this project, so we're going to start with you, put you on a hot seat. How did this project come about, and how is it that you, of all people, were chosen? Uh, That is a question that I continue to ask myself and uh, that I suspect the series editors and publishers do as well. Uh, All I know is that I got a couple of phone calls from uh, uh, Bob Katz, the co-publisher, and Andy Fusco, the general editor, saying, uh, boy, do we have a deal for you. It involves no money, no sleep, and no joy. But uh, it is a it is a it is a, a service to the community, and in fact, it was it was in fact great fun. Uh, and uh, sort of ticked along strangely easily from there. Uh, Bob and Andy were both great supports. John Bergquist, typically he's the other co-publisher, typically comes in later in the process because he's the production editor. Uh, but those three just sort of held my elbows, helped carry me along through this process. Uh, starting with, uh, <clears throat> I guess the two, the two other major human institutions, uh, in, involved in the manuscript series. You know, so it's sort of Bob and John and Andy who are the, the, the management structure behind it. And then I don't think it's every one of these books, but it feels like it's been every one of these books that, uh, Randall Stock writes, a fantastic lexicographical, bibliographical history of the manuscript. Uh, and Phil Burgum transcribes and annotates the whole darn thing. So in a sense, almost all of the really hard work is done before the volume editor and the commentators get involved. So when did it start? I mean, for our listeners, you know, who might not be aware of how long it takes on one of these projects. So the book is actually printed and available in January 2022. When did when was the first, you know, pen put to paper? As it were? Uh, the first phone calls, pen put to paper kind of stuff happened in early 2020. When you know, the, they, they pick an editor uh, and the editor is, you know, sort of confers with uh, with basically Andy Fusco and Bob Katz, brainstorm you know, authors and topics and so on and so forth. And then that, that basically you have about a year, a bit more than a year, till the spring of the following year to prepare a package to hand off to uh, John Berquist and Bob Katz. And then they spend the sort of middle months of that year, in this case it would be 2021, 
putting it in shape. And one of the things that uh, <clears throat> was that was really brought home uh, to everyone involved in this kind of thing in 2021 was Fusco, Berquist, and Katz are ferocious about getting things done, not only on time, but early. And it turns out that when there are global supply chain problems that plague the publishing industry terribly, having a book that's going to come out in January done the summer before means that the book really comes out in January. Uh, and so uh, the sort of the long tradition of pretty good discipline about scheduling, I think, really paid off for the BSI press this year. And we owe a thank you. We readers owe a thank you to to Andy, Bob, and John uh, for making that happen. Well, that's that's an interesting point, Ross. And you are no stranger to the editing and publishing process yourself. I mean, we talked with you the last time you were here on episode 219 about the Baker Street Almanac and, of course, your associated uh, publishing empire with the green bag uh, in the legal profession. So it's something you're, you're familiar with, the process and whatnot. But what is it specifically about this manuscript that made Bob, John, and Andy turn to you and say, Ross is our man. I think there were probably uh, a, a serious point and a, and a more jocular point about this. The more jocular point first, and that is that I'm I'm very malleable. I'm a very obedient guy, right? And and it's I think it's hard to find a Baker Street irregular who is malleable and obedient. So when they come across one, you know, they they would they would just prefer to use them up rather than than potentially not. Uh, but in all seriousness. Uh, a few years ago, uh, the, the Green Bag produced an annotated version of the Norwood Builder itself, not a manuscript edition version, but uh, in a slightly different context that is not that does not compete with the manuscript volume. I'd already been down this road, and I'd already worked with some of the people who would end up making good contributors for this. And in fact, you've also invited for this show... Uh, an important one of those in, in Ira Matetsky, who worked with me on, on the, the first Norwood Builder project uh, and then came back for this one. So I had some history with this particular story that made it make sense. Talk a little bit about that original uh, annotated version that you did for the Green Bag. I'm, I'm fascinated uh, about this. And, of course, your, I think your profession, yours and Ira's, uh, will certainly steer us in that direction. Uh, yes, you uh, you are tactfully touching on the fact that I'm a lawyer. Ira's a lawyer. Holmes's client in Norwood Builder is a lawyer. Uh, and if I may, on top of that, uh, and Ira, correct me if I miss anyone on this, but looking at the table of contents for this volume, Andy Fusco is a lawyer. Ross Davies is a lawyer. Ira Matetsky is a lawyer. Mike Homer is a lawyer. Uh, uh, Steve McAllister is a lawyer. Uh, Catlea Concepcion is a lawyer, and Jayantika Ganguly is a lawyer. <laughs> this is a law book. <laughs> well, for the record, I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on the internet. <laughs> but, um, I've, but I've hired lawyers. So. <laughs> well, and, and this is fascinating because this is one of those cases that um, while it's not about the law itself – it hinges on certain aspects of the law, certainly uh, of trusts and wills and and whatnot. Um, so we'll we'll kind of save that for uh, the kind of the second half of the conversation because really that's that's the core of the book: getting these lawyers to comment on different aspects of of the case. But Ira, I want to turn to you because, as I understand it, you were instrumental in securing the manuscript for this particular book. You know, in, in the past, we've had uh, generous collectors who have uh, given access to the BSI press to scan the documents and to, to really leaf through them. In this case, that wasn't quite the same, was it? No. Uh, this manuscript uh, is owned by the New York Public Library and specifically a unit of the library called the Berg Collection. Uh, and one of the chapters in the book is an interview I did with uh, Carolyn Vega, who has been for the past several years the curator uh, of that collection. Um, by coincidence or otherwise, uh, the New York Public Library building is five blocks from my apartment and three blocks from my office. So I am in and out of the library all the time. Um, 
the Berg Collection is uh, a great resource for uh, modern uh, uh, literature, uh, including, but certainly by no means limited to, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. They hold uh, the manuscripts of three of the Sherlock Holmes short stories, which is more than any other institution. They also hold the only complete surviving chapter of The Hound of the Baskervilles. They hold the Lost World manuscript, which has been brought out in both an annotated edition by uh, Wessex Press and a facsimile edition by the Conan Doyle estate. They own a couple of the Brigadier Gerard original manuscripts. They own important letter books of uh, A.P. Watt, uh, the literary agent's literary agent, uh, about the writing of the stories in 1891. They own A.P. Watt's account books, which which, uh, Ross has used uh, for scholarly work. They own uh, important correspondence uh, between William Gillette and Vincent Starrett, which Susan Dollinger has written about. It's a it's an amazing repository of of Conan Doyle uh, items. Yeah, and, 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 and I understand Glenn Maranker is currently in New York. Has anyone seen him in the proximity of the New York Public Library? And they are they watching him closely? I, I don't think I'm going to react to that, but what I will say is that one of the very first manuscript series volumes. Uh, long, long ago, uh, was a reprint of, I think it's chapter 11 of, of The Hound. That's right. Uh, which was authorized in, uh, by uh, Dame Jean uh, Conan Doyle when she was still alive. But subsequently, uh, the Berg Collection was, for a time, uh, they, they wanted people to come there and, and use the holdings. They uh, did not necessarily want the holdings copied. And so in 2018, I was doing some unrelated research there. And I was um, taking copious notes on some Doylean item. And one of the librarians came over to me and said, why don't you just take a photograph of that page? And I said, because my photograph, because my phone is in a locker downstairs pursuant to your policy. I, I was told we're not allowed to photograph anything. And she said, oh, we changed that. And so I said, uh, and so I said, would would it be possible to get copies of some of the Conan Doyle manuscripts? And she said, as long as they are not copyrighted, uh, that should be doable. So this was on a Friday afternoon, and by pure coincidence, the next day I was going to be uh, meeting up with uh, with uh, Bob Katz at a, at a Sherlockian uh, event. And uh, chatting with him before the event, I said, by the way, would it be of interest to you if I could uh, get hold of uh, uh, library quality facsimiles of a couple of uh, manuscripts? And he said, from where? And I said, uh, things like uh, the Norwood Builder from the New York Public Library. And he frowned and said, don't waste your time. Those manuscripts are are not available. And I said, uh, if uh, if that could be changed, would it be of interest? And uh, uh, he and uh, shortly thereafter, Mike Whalen made it very clear that I was authorized and directed to obtain these copies. That is fantastic. So, uh, w- w- first of all, uh, what other uh, Sherlock Holmes manuscripts are in the collection? We've got Chapter 11 of The Hound. We've got The Norwood Builder. Is there another one there? They've also hold, I believe it's uh, uh, The Devil's Foot and The Blanche Soldier. Oh, boy. Wow. So that says and to me, them, go ahead. And each of them came to the, 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 uh, the collection through a different and fascinating story, um, which uh, you'll read about in this book and hopefully in, in future books. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, that was the second part of the question. Uh, you know, who was Berg and how did the Berg collection come to be? The Bergs, plural, were two uh, physicians um who were uh collectors of of books of manuscripts of uh associated materials correspondence etc uh english and american literature primarily of the 19th and 20th centuries um and uh, they uh, donated their collections to the new york public library on condition that it be kept as a separate collection. The Berg Collection has its own 
lovely room uh, in the main branch uh, of the, I think it's officially called the Schwartzman Building now of the of the public library. This manuscript, there were a couple of other people whose uh, collections also made their way into the grander collection. This, uh, this manuscript, I believe, was contributed by a gentleman named Owen Young. But uh, in the book is, uh, is a, a great deal of uh, the background. That's fantastic. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will continue talking with Ross Davies and Ira Matetsky. Stay tuned. MX Publishing recently launched the MX Audio Collection, an app with a series of interviews and other audio content, beginning with Lee Child talking about Reacher and Sherlock. There are many more interviews lined up for 2022, including Jeffrey Hatcher, screenwriter for Mr. Holmes, Otto Penzler, the founder of the Mysterious Bookshop and Mysterious Press, authors like Bonnie McBird and Nicholas Meyer, and yours truly, Scott Monty and Burt Walder from I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Every month, MX will be adding in at least four new Sherlock Holmes stories and some more theater performances. There'll be more from the deductionist Ben Cardall, too. You can read more about the app and sign up for the MX Audio Collection at iHose.co slash MX Audio. That's all lowercase, iHose.co slash MX Audio. There's a monthly subscription option and an annual subscription option with a significant discount. And iHost listeners get an additional 25% off of any subscription you choose just by using the code IHOSE when checking out. A percentage of the proceeds of the app go to Undershaw, the school for children with learning disabilities. It was the former home of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who of course wrote many of the Sherlock Holmes stories while he lived there. So go to iHose.co slash MXAudio and use the code IHOSE today for the MX Audio Collection. All right, we are back talking with two reputable BSIs about their contribution to a masterpiece of villainy, one of the latest books in the BSI manuscript series. Ira was just telling us about his patience and fortitude dealing with the New York Public Library. And those of you who have been there, you understand that I'm referring to the two lions that sit perched outside of the main branch there on Fifth Avenue, Patience and Fortitude, so named by Fiorello LaGuardia. Um, Ira, I just want to kind of put a cap on this. When you, when you first saw this manuscript of the Norwood Builder, um, we're, we're, first of all, were you able to handle it physically? And what was your reaction upon seeing it? Uh, I was able to handle the manuscript uh, physically. Uh, my first uh, involvement uh, uh, with the manuscript actually occurred when I was working with Ross, writing a couple of uh, the footnotes for his annotated lawyerly version of the of the Norwood Builder in the Green Bag Almanac that he mentioned, and that was actually one of the projects that drew me to Sherlock Holmes in the in the first place. Um, when I was on the program last time, I talked about some other things that were getting helping to turn me from a casual Sherlockian into whatever it is I am today. But Ross calling me, and I, I knew I had known Ross for years um, as a contributor to his law journal, The Green Bag. And when he invited me to uh, write about the Norwood Builder, uh, it came right on top of a number of other things. The whole world was drawing my attention to Conan Doyle and, and Sherlock Holmes, but that was a big part of it. So I thank Ross for that. Um, and I did uh, take the walk over to the um, Berg collection. I, I won't say that anybody can come in. You have to give them some explanation of some serious scholarly or, or quasi-scholarly reason you want to use the materials, but uh, working uh, working on the almanac qualified, and uh, the manuscript was given to me. It's uh, bound. Um, it's, I believe, 50, you know, one of those little, uh, the way Conan Doyle bound uh, his manuscripts uh, after the war, after World War One, and uh, you can turn the pages, uh, and you can handle it and you can look at it. The first thing I noted, and it became the basis for one of the footnotes I wrote for Ross, was 
one of the great things about working with these manuscripts is you can see Conan Doyle's thoughts evolving because he's writing the manuscript in real time and he didn't have it, you know, we're not seeing it after four drafts or after um, it's been typed up and he's edited it. So you can see there are sentences or words or paragraphs that are crossed out, uh, some of which are are of interest. And you can watch the whole evolution. Um, you can look at the manuscript, touch the manuscript. You cannot take it with you. <laughs> so, Ira, uh, you know, ge- here's the general question and then an observation. So from the manuscript, what did you learn? You know, what's what surprised you? But to me, you know, oh, just opening the book and looking at the first page of the manuscript, um, clearly Conan Doyle, you know, this is the Sherlock Holmes series, and he's identified the title page in that way, The Adventure of the Norwood Builder. And this is the second story, The Return of Sherlock Holmes. He's got Roman numeral two and in pencil, somebody's put on 9,500 words. But the cover um, says, Anno Belli Gemini four. Why is why are those words there? And what do they mean? Oh, I, I believe what that means is the um, fourth year of the war with Germany, which is when the manuscript would have been uh, bound uh, in or about um, – 19, uh, 1917 or 1918. Um, there's actually a, a, st- a great story to Conan Doyle's uh, getting his manuscripts from the return back from the Strand magazine. Um, as a general rule, there are exceptions. Most of the manuscripts pre-hiatus do not survive. Almost all of the manuscripts post-hiatus from the from the hound and the the hound is a special case, but from the return on, do survive. Ross has actually written about uh, how Conan Doyle was able to get the manuscripts back from the Strand. Now, this this manuscript seems to have been typed because um, somebody, not in Conan Doyle's hand, but on the but on the first page, says three copies sent to Sir A. C. Doyle Undershaw Hindhead. Um, yes, by, by this point, Doyle, Conan Doyle had. Uh, engaged a professional typing service. Uh, he would uh, have three copies made. Uh, I presume that one of them would go to the Strand magazine where uh, the editors would prepare it for publishing. And one of them would go to uh, whoever had been chosen as the uh, American publisher of that particular story. Yeah. Well, was there anything in the manuscript, you know, when you looked at it that was surprising to you or, um, you know, really interesting or unexpected? There were a couple of crossouts that actually um, led me to uh, speculate that uh, one of the key plot points of the story is that, uh, you know, this is not a will that would have been taken seriously by, by lawyers. It should have been clear from from uh, from the way this uh, the way this happened to uh, Hector McFarland that uh, that Jonas Oldacre was not serious about this being his will, either that and or uh, McFarland was not a great lawyer. They didn't have two witnesses. Uh, the one witness was a beneficiary, which was not permitted, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in looking at the manuscript, um, there were a couple of changes that lead, led me to, to believe that um, – Conan Doyle was not necessarily, or, or Dr. Watson, as the case may be, were not necessarily up on the five points of the British uh, law of wills uh, either. For more detail, hunt down the uh, the uh, lawyerly annotated version, which is available online at Ross's website. We will have and a link to that in our show notes to uh, the Greenbag Almanac. So uh, that'll be handy for people to kind of compare and contrast here. Um you know, one of the things, and this this is uh, free range for either one of you, Ross or Ira. Um, when we look at Conan Doyle manuscripts generally, they are very clean. Uh, Conan Doyle seemed to know exactly uh, what the plot points were. He seemed to know exactly what the dialogue would be, what his descriptions would be. And there's a word crossed out here and there. Um, or a phrase that is corrected or inserted, usual uh, editing uh, kind of activities. However, in this manuscript, I noticed something that I haven't picked up in any other Conan Doyle manuscript that's been part of this series yet, and I could be mistaken. 
On page 15 of the manuscript, which is on page 40, pages 42 and 43 of the book, there is an entire half page uh, boxed around and X'd out that Conan Doyle clearly had misgivings about how he stated this part of the case. And in this case, he, he noted that Jonas Oldacre is a well-known woman-hater. Uh, that's a loaded phrase right there. But it, it seemed as if he was giving away too much of the plot point uh, at this point and realized, uh, oh, I need to step back a little and be a little more opaque about what's going on here. At least that was my take. How did you respond to that A very different kind of annotation in the manuscript? Oh, my goodness. Yes, this is, first of all, if I may, uh, and I, I suspect this is something that many of us who, who enjoy not only the canon, but, but poking around with these manuscripts uh, uh, can't help wondering about, which is that Peter Blau has some notes written by the literary agent having to do with the Valley of Fear. Could it really be the case that late in his writing career, Arthur Conan Doyle took up the practice of brainstorming on paper what he was going to put into canonical stories? Or could it be instead the case that he perhaps often scribbled these notes but didn't bother to save them? Scribble the notes, he'd write the story, he'd toss the notes in the fire and send the story off to the typist. Golly, I would love to be able to rummage through the grate in his fireplace. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but yes, this 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 page for me brings to mind Peter Blau's tiny treasure trove of Valley of Fear notes. I think you're right, Scott. I think, in, in fact, I've, I've I think your your theory is probably the right one. It had not occurred to me that way. Uh, so. Uh, uh, not not the fact that I didn't think of it doesn't mean that you know, great minds like your own wouldn't have come up with it early on, uh, but uh, but it does it does have the feel of the writer getting a bit carried away. He's he's got this great story idea and he gets too far down the track too soon. Yeah. Now we should tell our readers that what we're talking about here is a really interesting um, paragraph. So this this is um, you know in the story where McFarlane is talking to Holmes and Lestrade is there and the events of this evening are being carried out. And the door was opened for McFarland by a middle-aged woman who was his housekeeper. And um, Lestrade has this comment. I mean, this is really, you know, sort of two and a half paragraphs. Lestrade says, oh, it's a, that's a bad shot. McFarland, Jonas Oldacre, is well known as a woman hater. He has no servant except an old charwoman who comes in for two hours every morning and he gets all his meals at the station restaurant. I warn you again that you are only making a bad case worse. Then this will all come out against you. And Watson says, oh, our unfortunate client turned to ghastly color and he looked from one to the other of us like a hunted creature. Twice he tried to speak, but his dry lips would utter no sound. At last, with an effort, he was able to continue... His uh, statement, I'm speaking to you, Mr. Holmes. You will find out by this woman how far I am speaking the truth. And well, all of that down to the word truth is what is what Conan Doyle cut out. And I think, you know, I think two things. I mean, one is good for good for him for cutting it out, because the fact that Lestrade has identified Jonas Oldacre as a woman hater is just sort of, you know, an asteroid from Mars. I mean, it's got nothing to do with the story. And how did he do that? And. And and why and and what does that say to the case? But second, you know, Sherlockians, boy, just because no rough notes of writers, you know, I think you lawyers, writers use paper and pencils like popcorn. So the idea that Conan Doyle, you know, never made notes, never made outlines, and never sort of tried things out. And this sort of just sprung from his head, you know, and he walked around and he thought of the story and then all the chaos around him, he just wrote it out perfectly. It's ridiculous. So um, all of this stuff was what writers do. You know, you crumple it up and throw it away. And one of the great things about this particular volume is that not only can you see what's crossed out in other instances, 
Conan Doyle sometimes would, you know, cut out something or put in an insert page, and we don't know exactly what's crossed out. But the quality of the reproduction here is such that you can see the original story was written in what looks like uh, a, a fountain pen. Um, Probably a J pen. Okay. And, and uh, some of the crossouts are with the same fountain pen. And then there's another round of editing still in Conan Doyle's hand, which looks like it's in pencil or a much lighter pen. I think I recall it being pencil. Still done by Conan Doyle before he sent the, the manuscript in to be typed. So maybe he put it aside and reread it the next morning. And those are more along the lines of line edits and the quality of reproduction. And all the volumes of the manuscript series have had great reproduction, but this one is especially fine. And you can clearly distinguish between what's in the pen and what's in the pencil, and came, which came later. Absolutely. And if I may add one other, one other facet to, uh, or, or one other aspect to, to Scott's an initial insight on this, and this is one of the things that I very much enjoyed about working on this book, is just how sharp and thoughtful the authors were and how they interacted with the manuscript. And I invite you to look at footnote 12 of Sue Vazowski's essay about Mrs. Lexington, where she captures something else that's intriguing about that same crossed out passage in the book. She writes, Mrs. Lexington's identification of McFarlane is the occasion of an unfortunate error by the Strand magazine. When McFarlane is telling Holmes about his evening visit to Oldacre, Holmes interrupts, quote, one moment, end quote, said Holmes, quote, who opened the door, end quote, quote, a middle-aged woman who was, I suppose, his housekeeper, end quote, and it was she, I presume, who mentioned your name, end quote, exactly, said McFarlane, and then Holmes says, pray proceed. Sue Vazoski then observes, McFarlane seems tentative about her being Oldacre's housekeeper. Why then is McFarlane so emphatic about her identification of him at a police interview, an interview at which he was not present? <laughs> the two statements are oddly inconsistent. The solution to this puzzle is in the manuscript and in the more accurate Collier's reproduction of this passage. The, quote, exactly, end quote, was spoken by Lestrade, not by McFarlane. There are two speakers. McFarlane was tentative about Mrs. Lexington, and Lestrade stated with certainty that Mrs. Lexington had identified McFarlane. And that fits with, with, with what, what Bert was saying about the way this kind of Xing out sometimes happens, is Conan Doyle correctly as, as a general authorial matter, removed those paragraphs, but forgot to move Lestrade's identification up in the dialogue. Interesting. Thank you, Sue Vizoski. Yeah, nice. What a fantastic nice. observation. I, I love, you know, when we can pick out these, these details, these trifles, shall we say, um, and make something out of them that maybe we had passed over before. And, and Bert, I, I should note, uh, you know, in, in Lestrade's defense, um, this isn't widely known, but Lestrade and Oldacre were both members of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. <laughs> Makes an appearance later on in uh, Little Rascals. Um, anywho, Ross, you were mentioning before wanting to have access to Conan Doyle's fire grate. Well, in this case, we actually have something even more valuable related to Norwood, the Norwood Notebook which is now on display at the Grolier Club as part of Glenn Maranker's collection. There are some wonderful nuggets in there, plot points, shall we say, that make their appearance later on. What, what are a couple of those that you can uh, bring to mind? Well, uh, during, during the course of, of this, this book, I, or putting together this book, I talked with Glenn on a number of occasions about the Norwood Notebooks, uh, in part because... I, I wanted to know, first of all, of course, I would, I would love to look at them, right? Uh, and now we've all had a chance to do that in New York, which is incredible, uh, to, to, just to determine whether there were actual Norwood builder foreshadowings in the Norwood notebooks. These are the notebooks that, that, uh, that Conan Doyle kept 
uh, his basically his diaries and calendars that he kept during the early 1890s when he and his family lived in Norwood. And of course, this story gets written a decade later. And uh, just to give me a sense of what was going on with this, Glenn sent me some nice images of a few of the key pages. I had no idea why he had those so readily at hand, but now we all know why he had them so readily at hand. And uh, he gave me permission to reproduce a couple of snippets in the introduction to uh, the, the Norwood Builder book. And, uh, of course, there is the classic one that we, we, all, we all know about, which is the, the line written in, in December uh, of 1893, killed Holmes. Uh, but there are also all sorts of other nifty bits. For example, sometime during the early 1890s, it occurred to Conan Doyle that Holmes would be able to deduce, to deduce from looking at a chewed stick what kind of dog the owner of the stick had. Uh, and uh, uh, so we, we have in, uh, Holmes' deductions from a stick, St. Bernard dog. Uh, now, this probably resurfaced a little earlier than the Norwood Builder did because it sure sounds like the beginning of uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, uh, but in rooting through all of that, uh, we didn't find any specific Norwood builder foreshadowings in the Norwood notebooks. That's interesting, though, because uh, Conan Doyle lived in Norwood, uh, and and it was after he moved out, moved down to uh, to Surrey, to Hindhead, uh, that he used Norwood, his native soil, well, not native soil, but his 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 old neighborhood, shall we say, in uh, in this particular case, and. There's a wonderful chapter, a wonderful essay as part of this book that isn't related to the law, but that is related to Norwood, uh, the, the neighborhood, and Catherine Cook uh, of the uh, of the uh, the Marlebone Library uh, has access to the streets, the byways, the back alleys, etc., and uh, does a wonderful job describing, um, you know, the the Norwood of Conan Doyle's era. Yes, she does. And may I may I add something else that she does wonderfully in that chapter? She completely and perfectly and politely eviscerates a previous scholar's theory about or a pair of scholars' theory about where Jonas Oldacre's house was. Oh, talk more about that. Uh, well, one of one of those one of those previous writers is named Ross Davies. Uh and the other is is my 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 longtime friend and collaborator, collaborator Catlea Conception, who also contributes to this book in another way. Uh, but with respect to that, uh, I would I would, with your permission, read a very very short email exchange that Please. I had with Catherine about this. When she sent me the chapter, I you know, I replied, of course, and I said, before I get to a small handful of comments and questions, and by the way, by small I mean really small. It was a beautifully executed chapter from day one. I wrote, I must say that I see in this paper a bit of a pattern, which I have shared with Bob Katz. The author, meaning Catherine, enjoys tweaking the noses of her editors. <laughs> I know what you did to Bob's scholarship in your chapter for Nerve and Knowledge, a book that, that, that Bob Katz and, and uh, Annie Solberg uh, edited about uh, uh, medicine in the, in the canon. And she, she she gave Bob the same treatment she gave Cat Lay and me. And I see what you are doing to mine here. Your work is not questionable on the merits because you are consistently correct. <laughs> and the work is not questionable on the rhetoric because you are admirably dispassionate. Or, as I strongly suspect, your sense of humor is so perfectly dry that it would defeat any counterpoint anyway. There is truly no one like you. To which she replies, <clears throat> in perfect character... I am so glad you like the article. <laughs> oh, dear. Am I getting capital A, uh, capital R, reputation among BSI editors? Question mark. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. You know, that's one of the, the, the wonderful uh, glimpses behind the scene of, uh, you know, the, the, the emotion, the the, the back and forth that editors and authors have to play. And, you know, as much as we like talking about the, the subject matter in these wonderful books, it's wonderful to hear the storytelling that goes into the creation of them as well. Yes, I, w I, I, must, I must note, note, though, that 
Catherine offers no sympathy for the fact that I am I am sloshing around in a pool of my own scholarly blood as I'm writing as I'm writing this note. Uh, but yes, a, a, as we all know, a, a great joy of working on these things is just how nice and fun uh, the Sherlockian enthusiasts are. Yeah, I, I had written an article uh, for Ross's Almanac uh, last year in which I disagreed with eight eminent uh, prior Sherlockian writers, but but all of them were deceased by that point, so I got less pushback. <laughs> A victimless crime. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, Kat- Catherine's, Catherine's chapter is uh, uh, a masterful work of scholarship. And I, I would also point out that, that Catherine, uh, part, part of what makes her papers work so well, not just this one, but generally, is Yes, she's very knowledgeable and she's very deliberate, but she also does not overreach, which I think is part of what makes people like Davies and Katz such easy targets for her, right? Uh, because at the beginning of her chapter, she she correctly points out that you've got to figure out what you know where in the chronology the Norwood Builder takes place in order to make sense of the geography that she's about to analyze. And so she discusses the chronology a little bit. And points out that there is strong, there are strong arguments for August 1894 and also for August 1895. How does Catherine resolve this issue? Now, if she were a rabid chronologist, and there are one or one or two of those, I think, in, in the Sherlockian world, she would take a stand and she would harness hundreds of footnotes and and words of argument. Instead, she writes, "I incline to 1894." Watson would have said a year if he meant more than 12 months. But 1894-1895 is a precise enough dating for our purposes. She keeps her eye on the target. Unfortunately, the target is me. (laughs) (laughs) The target, in fact, is is figuring out what Deep Dean House is, Old Acres House is. And then she goes through and she does this marvelously methodical, historical geographical treatment but then she combines it with this 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 almost this this almost thrilling reimagination of of the steps that John Hector McFarlane would have taken as he hurried across Norwood in the middle of the night on that that important night in question whether it was August 1894 or 95 doesn't really matter for her purposes uh, and so what is, in some ways, a very dry analytical piece is brought very much to life, not only by her, her writerly skills, but by her ability to add drama to this. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, I, when you look at the uh, sum total of the essays in this book, um, while it has been edited by a lawyer and has involved a number of lawyers in the, uh, in the creation, it is not... Uh, solely legal folk, legally focused. Uh, as I said, geography with Catherine Cook. We've got a look at uh, Tramp Life from uh, uh, Anastasia. We've got uh, Mariel Caro looking at uh, how the buttons were found in the in the char uh, in in the remains of the fire. Um, wonderful essay by Stephen McAllister about uh, Jonas Oldacre's crimes or not. Uh, so when when you put all of these together, it's a really nice balance that. I think showcases the ability of Conan Doyle as a master storyteller. You know, uh, Sherlock Holmes is back. This is the second story in his return, and Conan Doyle is really at his top form in the return. I I agree with you. I've always uh, thought of this uh, uh, as one of uh, my favorite Holmes stories. In the in the conventional ratings that uh, of the surveys that have been done from time to time, this story generally tends to run in the middle of the pack. I personally place it a little higher than that. I would agree. Uh, there there is uh, there is there is a lot there is, there is a lot of depth to this story. He's you know, he's working with a lot of different pieces in interesting ways that you know, invite the kind of work that appears in this book. Uh, to go back to Anastasia Klimchinskaya's chapter, she she taps into something that actually seems doubly powerful about this invocation of the tramp. One, she points out that there is the 
the representational economic context. This was this, this story takes place in a time of great economic desperation among everyone outside of what we might think of today as the one percent. Uh, and so she's bringing in that that desperate person aspect. But then she goes on to say, uh, you know, to, to focus on this other aspect of the tramp, which is as this this uh, person who is in opposition to the social order, to social norms, to civility. And she writes, to exist both within society society and at its margins, to at once critique it and uphold its order. Does that not recall a certain Victorian detective possessed of a, quote, bohemian soul? Darn tootin' it does. Uh, <laughs> And you, you gotta want again. This, this bring, it brings back the, the fireplace grate. How much of this was in Conan Doyle's mind as he was scribbling with that pen, or or writing neatly with that pen? Was there a smile under that mustache as he brought in the tramp? For as Anastasia points out, the only time in the entire canon. That's that's a wonderful observation. Great stuff here. Well, the book is a masterpiece of villainy edited by Ross Davies, and it is a masterpiece, uh, as we just said. Um, please rush right out and get it from the BSI Press. We'll have a link to purchase the book in the show notes, along with uh, other items that have come up in our conversation here. Make sure you check those out at ihose.co slash ihose234 for all of your linked needs. Well, Ira, Ross, thank you for joining us once again here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You know, it's a wonderful community. Think about the names of the people who were mentioned, you know, who've contributed essays to this terrific book. And I had that experience with my essay. I have an essay in here. And the assignment that I got was to write about how the return of Sherlock Holmes was announced and promoted, how it was revealed to the world. The idea at the time being that there was probably an advertising campaign. But it had the assignment came in when the pandemic was started. And and uh one of the things I couldn't do was go to places like the Bird Library. But I got such help from Peter Blau and John Lullenberg and Catherine Cook and Kate Bromley and Professor Peter MacDonald, who's written a terrific book about publishing practice in Britain, and um, Sarah Obermiller Burnett, who has a great um, publication herself, a study in postcards about Sherlock Holmes and the golden age of the picture postcard. And, um, oh, and I got an enormous amount of help, actually, from the New York Public Library, from Paul Friedman and the research organization. Um, you know, the records of the Strand were largely lost, uh, at least according to one source during World War II, but um, there's there's quite a lot you can go searching for at the Berg, AP Watt Records, the University of North Carolina, the University of Reading, Portsmouth. Nick Utekin was very helpful. And the funny thing about writing is, you know, you start writing one thing, but you learn something different. You learn about what Conan Doyle thought about advertising, how P.G. Woodhouse promoted the return of Sherlock Holmes, how prominent Holmes was around that time, and how images and art excited people about Holmes's return. And that's why it's so great to see those postcards in, uh, in the book. So really, really a fascinating experience. Oh, and Matthias Bostrom found all the advertising uh, that, had, that McClure's had done in American papers when they when they um, resold the publication rights and how the return stories were then uh, printed and cut up and, and put in Sunday papers around the country. It's really interesting. Yeah, it seems to me that McClure's was really on top of their promotions game because, remember, this is the same publisher that took the Hound of the Baskervilles manuscript and cut it up and gave a sheet to each bookseller to post in their shop window. Uh, which is why we do not have the entire manuscript of the Hound of the Baskervilles extant anymore. We have uh, a single uh, chapter, which, of course, is at the Berg Collection, New York Public Library. And then there are sheets that are scattered here and there 
Uh, and I think this is where Glenn Maranker's uh, exhibition at the Grolier Club manages to bring all of this together. So this this notion of Holmes returning first in The Hound of the Baskervilles and then returning properly in The Return. It's kind of a one-two punch. So when you did your research, Bert, were there any surprises that you had or were you kind of expecting things to go in one direction and they went in another? Well, I originally expected to find uh, <laughs> some records of advertising. You know, we also went in search of W.H. Smith, the news agent, because the news agent in the U.K. did obviously a lot of sheets and advertising and promotion. And, of course, George Noons uh, in his other publications advertised the return. So we did find that. And I did find Collier's uh, advertising, Collier's placed some ads in the New York Times. But the idea that there was a campaign, as we would today consider a campaign about the return of Sherlock Holmes, um, you know, it, it really, you know, wasn't, doesn't appear to have been so. This, the, the surprise, some of the surprises was, was to discover more about Conan Doyle's thoughts about advertising literature, which he was not in favor of. <laughs> And in fact, that's how the essay uh, starts. Uh, it starts with him spending 25 pounds to advertise apparently the, the sale of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes in book form by noons is going slowly. There are still thousands of copies left. And he puts 25 pounds on the table to do some newspaper advertising. Which is very successful, by the way. And then there's a second. And then there's a second printing. Is, was he seemingly of the mind that his own work should rest on its own merits and his reputation should be the lead? No, his his, his idea was the work should really that, that a publisher should be responsible for advertising and promoting, and b the work should stand on its merits. And he was very offended when uh, and he know, he wrote letters to the Times about one particular author who spent a lot of time blowing his own horn, horn, and this just, you know, offended him um, dreadfully. He felt it was very unseemly. Yeah, and, you know, that, that strikes me as very consistent with Conan Doyle's personality, as we know it. Uh, a man of integrity, a man who uh, was probably more humble uh, than his reputation afforded him to be. Um, yeah. You know, he certainly had a lot to brag about, but he was he was a gentleman. He was um, not in favor of that kind of uh, self-tooting, shall we mm. say. But the, but the funny thing is, you know, when you start writing something, the lovely thing about writing these things is, you know, you start writing one thing and then you learn something completely different. Mm. For example, in Collier's, the month before the return started, there was a full page, ad, full page advertisement with a two-thirds of the page devoted to a portrait of Conan Doyle drawn by an artist with the initials WGS. And no one knows. There's some speculation that it's another artist that was in the UK mm. whose name fits those initials, but that's not really very likely. No one knows who that artist was. And you find out that although there's a lot in AP Watts records in the University of North Carolina, you know, here and there, scattered all around, um, you realize how much has been um, how much has been lost, and so so you know you find these um, you know you find these mysteries, and then you learn a lot. I had no idea that uh, you know, for example, one in the days when there would be a morning edition of a newspaper and an evening edition of a newspaper, they would take a Sherlock Holmes story from the Return, and they would print the first part of it in the morning. <laughs> And then the second part of it in the evening edition, so you had to buy both papers. It's, it's kind of a cliffhanger for uh, newspaper subscribers. Yeah, and then some local papers would make it into a news story all about how much the stories cost. You know, $40,000 for these stories. Here, you know, in the Daily you know, it'll be in today's, today's town leader. You know, you've got to see this. You're not going to believe it. That's fantastic. Well, you learn something new every day. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne-Margaret Lewis, Steve Hockensmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, 
and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes. The illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com. Of course, everyone knows those dulcet tones. That means it's time once again for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to guess which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about. Now, if you were around here in the last episode, you'll recall that we gave you this clue. A day's work ruined, then Watson was enthralled. One way to make a fortune, keep a medico on call. Bert, do you know which story we are talking about here? Yes, that's a terrific story. Holmes tells Watson about an old school chum of his who has this mystery at his home, and Holmes travels out there and uh, discovers the lost recipe for a very spicy old English condiment. That's the story Watson called The Mustard Victual. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, no, I'm sorry. That that is, surprisingly enough, that is not the correct answer. Mm. And we did have an entry once again, our, our old faithful Eric Decker's, uh, just came in under the wire. He said, I hope I'm not too late. I was distracted by the superb owl. Oh, excuse me, the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have the answer. It's the story of the factory owner from the Balkans whose reckless disregard for safety saw many a worker lose a finger or an entire hand during the work. It's the negligent Croatian. Wait, Eric says, I may have been celebrating a little too much this weekend. Go barn owls. But the answer is more likely the resident patient. Ah, yes, Eric, that that is what we were looking for. The resident patient. Uh, you and Bert, I don't know. You're um, you're something of a of a of a breed of sorts. Uh, well, let's see. We had uh, a few entries, not too many last time. Maybe other people were uh, distracted by the superb owl as well. But let's uh, take the ones that we do have and give the prize wheel a big spin. Watching it go around. And it's coming to rest on number... Number eight. Number eight. And that corresponds to... Bruce Harris. Hey, Bruce, congratulations. We will be getting you a piece of, I guess it's a historical Sherlockian scholarship, something related to uh, the last episode, which was with Vincent Rice and that early Sherlockian scholarship. So something exciting from the IHO's vaults. So stay tuned for that. Now, I promised people that in this episode we would have something exciting for you in the way of a prize and we do indeed we have a copy of the bsi press book a masterpiece of villainy this is a really valued prize valued at 39.95 actually and we will be getting this off to the lucky person who answers this canonical couplet a vesta buried in the mud it had been a rainy night Had the inspector imagination, he could rise to greater heights. If you know the answer to this week's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with the canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win. Good luck. 
Well, that should be a nice prize, a BSI press book. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. With a work by Burt Walder inside, making it even more valuable. <laughs> Reducing its value to thirty four ninety five. <laughs> we'll even make you pay for the postage. No, um, it will arrive at your doorstep uh, after we uh, get your answer. So that'll be great. Um, we do have a number of uh, exciting guests coming up here in the weeks ahead. Of course, we... Uh, drop these on the 15th and the 30th of every month. So I can't wait for which episode is going to drop on February 30th, Bert. <laughs> Me neither. I think we should just stop until February 30th comes around, don't you? Oh, that's an idea. That's a, Yeah, if you would like us to produce another show this February, <laughs> write in and tell us so. The email is comment that I hear of Sherlock.com. Uh, and, of course, we have a reconstituted uh, call in line. Uh, I didn't mention that at the top of the show, but it is five eighteen ninety five two twenty one B five. So eighteen ninety five two twenty one B bookended by a five on either end. Isn't that a cool phone number? Very cool. I wish we had gotten this years ago and been consistent <laughs> in our efforts. But hey, sixteenth season's charm. They say. <laughs> Who says that? No one says that. No one says that. Oh, but what we do say around these parts is, until next time, I remain the telephonically connected Scott Monty. And I am still receiving telegrams at BertWolder.USA. <laughs> <laughs> and together we say, The, the Games Afoot! <laughs> the, the games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.